If you'd please turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 10 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 23 to chapter 11, verse 1. And this is our eighth sermon in this section between chapters 8 and 10, looking at this question of whether it is okay for a Christian to knowingly eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. And you may be thinking, as I am, that seems to be a lot of sermons and a lot of text for, for a question that's not really very relevant to us. Right, how many of you have had someone come up to you and ask you, you know, can I, can I eat meat sacrificed to an idol? You know, I, I was thinking about becoming a Christian, but I really need to know this, if I can eat meat sacrificed to an idol. No, of course not. This is not something that, we even, that, that is even something that we would deal with today. But Paul spends so much time on this seemingly minor question, because what he's doing is he's using it as a teachable moment. Paul is giving the Corinthians, and, and the Holy Spirit is giving us general principles that extend well beyond this specific area. And the specific issue may not be relevant to us today, but these principles that we're looking at, these principles, they are extremely relevant. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that of which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for your spirit to be with us. Lord, we know that uh, even though your word is true, we are dull, our hearts are dull, and we need your spirit to open our hearts to hear from you. Father, I need your spirit to take my words, my babbling words, and to make them your words. So, Father, I pray that you will use this time. Each one of us will have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Each one of us will be changed by this time. Each one of us will be changed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, when we ask a question of someone, we like to get an answer, right? We like to get a simple yes or no, especially when it comes to questions of morality. We like to know the rules. We like to know what to expect. We want to know what is expected of us. We like to, to draw lines. We like to say that inside the lines are okay. Outside the lines, outside the box, that's out of bounds. And we often want someone to tell us what to do, and then we can do it. The problem is, the problem is life is seldom so clear Life is seldom black and white. Situations vary. Motivations vary. And rarely is one action always morally right and another actually always morally wrong. Oftentimes we ask the question, expecting a yes or no answer, when the answer we get is, it depends. 
And we hate that answer. It depends. We hate it depends because it depends requires us to think. It requires us to process. It requires us to have wisdom and discernment. And it's much harder. It's much harder. A simple yes or no is much easier. But it's it depends is, is very difficult. And this is the answer Paul gives to the question about this meat sacrificed to idols. Is it okay to eat food sold in the marketplace that may have been sacrificed to idols? And Paul's answer is, it depends. See, the gospel of grace brings us freedom. Freedom from the captivity of legalism. Freedom from the captivity of superstition. From, from tradition. From being bound by empty formalism. By being bound by these black and white rigid rules. In fact, this is one of the, the first light bulbs that goes off when we hear the gospel. It's the freedom. It's the freedom that the gospel gives us. Freedom from striving, striving to earn our standing with God. Freedom from the, the trap of our own performance. When I do well, I feel good about myself. When I do poorly, I despair. Seeing our, from, from seeing our, our, our performance as the source of our identity, we get freedom from this. The source of our worth, we get freedom from this. The source of my standing with God. We are given freedom through the gospel. And the gospel shatters the illusion. The illusion that we can somehow earn our own salvation. We, we, see, we're, we're deceived. We think that we are so much better than we actually are. And the gospel gives us God's standard. You know what God's standard is? It is perfection. God's word tells us, you want to earn, earn your salvation? Okay, you have to obey God's law. You have to obey all of God's law. You have to obey all of God's law all of the time, perfectly. And God's law requires perfect, perpetual obedience. And not just outward, but inwardly, in thought, word, and deed. And also done with a perfect motivation. A motivation that is God's glory, not our own personal gain. And just one mistake. One mistake, and we've blown it. Just one wrong motive, and we are disqualified. This is God's standard. My friends, not a single person born by ordinary generation has ever done this. Ever. We all fail. Each and every one of us fail at this. But scripture tells us, scripture tells us that there was one. One not born by ordinary generation. The Lord Jesus Christ. He was God's own son. He was God in the flesh. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary as we confessed in the Nicene Creed. And Jesus was the only person, the only person in all of history to merit, to merit under the law, salvation. Jesus and Jesus alone exhibited this perfect, perpetual obedience in thought, word, and deed, motivated only by God's glory. And the good news is, the amazing news, the amazing news of the gospel is that he, Jesus Christ, became sin. He who knew no sin, he became sin so that we, the sinners, we could become the righteousness of God. And God then makes this grand transfer. See, Christ's perfect obedience and perfect righteousness, it is credited to us. It is rewarded in us, rewarded by eternal life. And our sin, our rebellion, it's credited to Christ. And it's punished in Christ, punished on the cross. And this transfer is offered to us, offered to every single person, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done. It is offered on, based solely on grace. There's absolutely nothing we can do to earn it. And it is received. It is, becomes effective in us personally, based solely on faith. And this faith is not some extract, nebulous faith in faith. 
The object of this faith is the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. A real person who did real work in space and in time. And the only way we can know about this, know about the gospel, is through the authoritative testimony of scripture alone. And this, my friends, is the gospel. And when a soul has a saving encounter with Christ through the gospel of grace, we experience the most joyful, we experience the most amazing freedom. Freedom from the captivity of our sin, the captivity of the law, the captivity of our own performance, the the freedom from the captivity of our own legalism. And as new (coughs) creations in Christ, we just have to proclaim this freedom. We must declare it. We must declare it to the entire world, praising God, giving God alone the glory of it. It's all of him. It's none of us. And in this, when we do this, God is seen. God is glorified when we do this. My friends, this is the most natural reaction. This is the most natural reaction of this transformation we receive from the gospel of grace. <clears throat> but the question is, is it always appropriate? Is it always appropriate to, to flaunt this freedom, to display this freedom openly? And again, the answer is, it depends. It depends. See, in this passage, Paul gives us principles, principles that help us discern when it is appropriate to boldly display, boldly enjoy our Christian freedom. And when it's appropriate, to surrender this freedom. Surrender this freedom for the purpose of building others up. And in this, God is glorified. So verse, this, this passage starts off, verse 23. It starts off with, all things are lawful. And if you look at, if you're using the ESV Bible, you'll notice that the ESV places these words, all things are lawful, in quotes. As I mentioned in previous sermons, scholars believe that certain phrases uh, were slogans. They were sayings of the Corinthians. They weren't actually original from Paul. They were sayings that he's answering to. And to show this, the translators put these in quotes. So this all things are lawful. This may have been a, a slogan of the Corinthians church to describe this freedom that I just described, this freedom that they have from, from the pagan rituals, the superstitions that they now have because they are in Christ, because they are Christians. And Paul doesn't disagree with the slogan, but what he does is he gives them qualifications. Paul wants them to understand, yes, all things are lawful, but then he says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. See, Paul wants them to make sure that they don't take their eye off the ball. Yes, all things are lawful to us, but we still need to be wise. We need wisdom. See, we're redeemed for a purpose. And that purpose is not just to to enjoy our freedom, not just so we can eat whatever we want to eat, just so we don't have to o- obey these laws. We are uh, we are have such a, so, so much higher purpose than to simply enjoy ourselves in this freedom. We are redeemed to glorify God, to make Him known to others, to draw others to Christ. That is the purpose for our redemption: to glorify God. And yes, all things are lawful, but He says not all things are helpful. That is, they do not lead towards our ultimate goal, which is glorifying God. So before we exercise our Christian freedom in anything, not just the immediate question about eating food sacrificed to idols, we need to ask ourselves a question. We need to ask, before we exercise our freedom, is what I'm about to do, is this helpful? We need to ask ourselves, is exercising this Christian freedom, will this build someone else up or will this hurt someone? Will this draw them to Christ or will it push them away? Will it edify them? Or does it make does it make them want to flee Christ? Will it make them known in this situation? Will this bring Christ glory? And a big problem 
in the Christian church and a big problem in our modern church. I think especially in our modern evangelical church is that we think it's all about us. We think it's all about us. I remember the critique, uh, uh, hearing a critique of the evangelical church from a minister in another tradition. And this person said, they're only concerned with their own salvation, evangelicals. They have no understanding of the corporate nature of the church. No understanding of their their responsibility of the Christian community. And Paul addresses this spirit, this this failure, one, one that we do urgently, I think we all need to hear in this next verse. And this verse provides us, I think, a very good check to determine how, how to appropriately enjoy our Christian freedom. So please take a look at verse 24. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. See, Paul uses this principle of building others up and of seeking their good of the neighbor. And notice that it's not limited just to Christians. He doesn't say brothers to seek the good of your brother, but seek the good of your neighbor. This means it's both Christians and non-Christians alike. And Paul uses these principles to build discernment, to know what is the best way to use our Christian freedom. What is the best way to use this freedom, whether we use it or surrender, to draw others to Christ? What is is the best way to do the best good for our neighbor, to build our neighbor up? And in the next five verses, verses 25 to 29, Paul uses this question of food sacrifices idols he uses as a case study a case study to illustrate how we are to apply these principles to build discernment and here we have two competing principles basically that require discernment first is we want to show this freedom we have in the gospel this is a legitimate thing we have freedom from rules we have freedom from traditions so we want to show that our relationship with god it's not a matter of following the rules but it's a matter about being a new creation in Christ. Not by rules, but through Christ. This is what this is showing us. But the second is that we want this freedom. The second principle he's showing us here is we want this freedom to be used to draw others towards Christ, not to push them away. So this may require that that we forego a freedom that we have in order to help draw others to a closer relationship with Christ. So let's look at verses 25 through the first part of 29. Paul says, Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. And verse 25 basically says, when you go to, to the marketplace, eat whatever is sold to you. Don't worry about whether this meat may or may not have been part of a sacrifice. And can you see the, the, the freedom that is given in this position? You don't have to be worried. You don't have to be worried. Well, this might have been used, and, and I have to have guarantees that it wasn't used in a sacrifice. The freedom. And this is completely different than you would see from the Pharisees. See, a Pharisee would have been overly concerned, would have wanted certain guarantees. And if there was even a a chance, they would not eat it. They would not want to become unclean, even accidentally by eating something that was ceremonially unclean. So even if there was a chance it was involved in a pagan sacrifice, they would not eat it. But you see the freedom that the Christian has? See, the Christian understands that no food in and of itself is clean or unclean. Verse 26 says, for the earth is the Lord's 
and the fullness thereof. Paul here is quoting from the Psalms, Psalm 24, 1. It says, the earth is the Lord's. See, everything in the earth, everything belongs to God. And God made it good for our enjoyment, for our use. So food in and of itself is good. See, the problem here was not the food. The problem was that the food was offered in a sacrifice to an idol. So it's not the food itself. The problem is the idolatry, the idolatry that was associated with the food. You see, idolatry is bad. The food is good. And in this case, the food is shown is showing that eating the food is showing Christian freedom. It's showing that he is not bound by superstition. He's displaying this freedom. And he's doing this. He's showing that he doesn't even worry about these gods. He knows these gods don't exist. He's eating this food that comes from God, and this food is good. Now, you might be thinking, if you were here last week, didn't Paul say in verses 20 to 22 that even though the idols are nothing, that those who sacrifice to the idols are sacrificing to demons? So even though we know there's no, there's no false gods, there's no gods in the idols, but there's actually demons behind the idolatry. And didn't, didn't I say in the sermon that there's a real danger in participating with demons? So wouldn't that danger still exist in the case of eating the food that was sacrificed to the demons? And the answer is no, it would not. And the reason is, is the problem is not in the food. The problem is the idolatry. See, and the problem is when Christians participate in idolatry, not when Christians eat food. That when they participate in idolatry, they are participating with demons. And yes, when they do this, there is a danger. There is, the, there is a danger in idolatry. It's participating with demons, and it brings dishonor to the Lord. But even if this meat that's being sold in the marketplace at one time was used in a pagan sacrifice, was, was used for idolatry, now that it's sold in the market, it's no longer associated with the idolatry. It's just simply being sold as meat. It's no different than the other meat. There's no way to distinguish from it from the meat that was used in idolatry, meat that was not. So for this reason, it's okay to eat the meat because the meat is no longer associated with idolatry. The idolatry is bad, not the food. And if the food is no longer associated with idolatry, it is perfectly okay, perfectly fine for a Christian to eat it. In fact, this is a good thing because it's showing the Christian freedom, the freedom from formalism, the freedom from superstition. And the same principle applies to eating, uh, eating in a home of an unbeliever. We see this in the next verse, in verse uh, 27. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the grounds of conscience. See, a Pharisee would never do this. First of all, a Pharisee would never go into the home of a Gentile, never go into the home of an unbeliever, never go into the home of someone who's not part of God's covenant people. But they would, beyond that, they certainly would eat, not eat their food. An unbeliever's food was considered unclean. In our gospel reading, <clears throat> you saw the criticism of Jesus for eating. He was called a glutton and a drunkard <clears throat> because he was eating with sinners. He was criticized for eating with sinners. But the Christian, the Christian is freed from this concern. The Christian can freely eat in the home of an unbeliever, not worrying that he will ever be unclean. And can you see the advantage this has for the spread of the gospel? It gives the Christian greater contact with unbelievers. It gives the opportunity to have this intimate fellowship along, around a meal 
and, and, and uh, just to build relationships. Christians don't have to worry about offending their host by being overly suspicious of the food and say, well, and being picky. I can't eat that because it might have some religious significance. They can be gracious. They can be loving. They can be accepting. They don't have to worry that the, the food has the potential that it may have at one time been used in a pagan sacrifice, even though that association no longer exists. <clears throat> so <clears throat> if there is no mention of the food being used in pagan sacrifice, if there's no active association with idolatry, then eating it is good. It brings God glory. However, the situation changes, we see in verse 28. <clears throat> verse 28 says, But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. So if someone tells you that this food that you are eating now has been sacrificed to an idol, has been involved in this idolatry, this food which, again, is good in itself, now when they told you this, now is that, that association is, bringing, is being brought back, even if it's only in the mind of the person. In this case, Paul advises, do not eat it. Paul says, do not eat it for the sake of the conscience. And he clarifies this in verse 29. I don't mean your conscience, but his. See, a Christian eating food that an unbeliever associates with idolatry will be regarded by the unbeliever as the Christian approving of the idolatry. And even though to the Christian this association with idolatry is gone, in fact, the person may even be mistaken. It may not, he may have gotten it wrong. It may never have been used in idolatry. But for the unbeliever, it now has that connection. It now would be sinful for that person to eat it because they're making the connection. Do you see the connection is not the food? It is the idolatry that they're associating with it. And what the Christian needs to do is to say, if you're associating it, I am not going to eat it because I am not going to participate in that idolatry. And I think Paul here, in referring only to the other person's conscience in in verse 29, he's assuming that the Christian... The Christian who's eating in the home is completely free from this association with idolatry. But if the the Christian were a weaker brother, as we saw in in chapter 8, if he's one who may feel that this eating food, he's actually participating in idolatry, then this person himself should not eat it, not only for the other person's conscience, but for his own conscience. Because if he did eat it, he himself would be sinning because he makes that association. Do you see what it is? It's, 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 It's the association that they're making with the idolatry. But for the person who doesn't make this association, for the person not tempted to idolatry by eating this food, they may ask the question that we see in, in the second part of verse 29. He says, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? He's saying, I don't feel that way. Why should I be limited? And the answer to this, it's just not about us. It's not about, it's not about our own rights. It's about building others up. It's about doing what's in their best interest, the best interest of your neighbor. See, if the neighbor sees you eating this, the neighbor's going to think, that's okay. This idolatry is okay, which it's not. This is sinful. This will push people away from Christ. If they're not a believer, it'll harden their hearts to Christ. If they are a believer, it is sinful. It'll push them away. It will not edify them. So it's not about us. However, we also need to be careful not to fall into the opposite ditch, into the legalism ditch. See, just because food may have been sacrificed to idols, some people may go all the other way and say, well, don't eat any food at all, ever. And just because there's a, a possibility that it's associated. But it doesn't mean that we should, we should do that. And this point is made in the question asked in verse 30. He says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? 
And this goes back to the principle that all food comes from God. All food is good in of itself. It's, it's, it's good in itself. And we're not to denounce someone who eats of this and gives thanks to God while they're eating. And then next, Paul distills all the principles that we saw basically in these, these three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, into a single verse. In fact, this one verse, I think, is a, a good summary of all of Christian morality. Take a look at, at verse 31. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I think I'm going to preach a whole, I think I'm going to do an encore next week and, and preach all on this one verse because it's so good. And also, as I told Lynn, it's, it's going to keep me from having to look at chapter 11 one more week where it's talking about whether women should wear head coverings in church or not. So I figured give me one more week from having to tackle that difficult situation. But look at verse 31. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's it. You want to know one verse for, for Christian morality? That's the verse. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. This is the heart of Christian morality. See, individual circumstances, we can't have rules. Individual circumstances will vary. But this verse is universal. So should I eat? Should I not eat? Should I drink? Should I not drink? All that. The answer to that is it depends. But verse 31 gives us the top priority, which is always true. Do all for the glory of God. And this verse tells us that our top motivation of the Christian life, whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God. And like I said, I'm going to look more into this next week. We're going to go through and we'll spend the whole, the whole sermon on this one verse because there's so, much, there's so much here beyond this immediate context. Let me move on. Paul then concludes this entire matter with the following verses. Verses 32 uh, 33 and then verse um, 1 of chapter 11. And he says, give no event, offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So basically he says, don't offend anyone. This includes all people. It includes Jews, Jews, Gentiles, and the church. Give no offense to anyone. Whatever Paul, what, what, and, and what does Paul mean by no offense? Does it mean that, that, that people might not be upset with you? That you're, that you're offending them? No, that's not exactly what he's talking about. He says, do nothing that will push a person away from God. That's what he means by offense. Nothing that will make them, whether a believer or unbeliever, make them further from God, make it harder for them to become a believer, harder for them to come to faith. <clears throat> not to do anything that would hinder the work of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit in drawing the unbeliever to faith in Christ, in, in building the believer in edification, having them become more like Jesus in their life and in their work. Nothing to, to hinder the, un, the, the believer's growth in grace. Verse 33, he says, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. <clears throat> and here Paul is, is reiterating what he said in chapter 9, that he has become all things to all people in order that some might be saved. And this is the, the call of all Christians. We are to have the same mindset. We are to imitate Paul. We are to surrender our, our rights as Paul does. We are, we are to imitate Paul. This is admirable. But no, notice what he says here. We are to imitate him as he imitates Christ. We see this in verse 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I think this is a really important verse for us <clears throat> because what it does is it gives us a proper relation with other people. See, we're surrounded by sinners. And each one of us, even believers and unbelievers, we are made in the image of God. And there are things about every single person that are good, that are, that are showing, no matter how far from God, <clears throat> people that, 
Daniel is in prison with now. No matter how bad, there's something about them because they are made in the image of God that you can see. And then conversely, there are people, even the most, most high pastors and teachers and parents, there are people who are, <clears throat> who no matter how good they are, they're still sinners. They're still fallen. And if you look at everything they do, you will be disappointed. If you look at everything I do, you will be disappointed. But if you look at everything I do that follows Christ, you'll be following Christ. See, that is the, that, that is the thing with any other person. We are to look at the, what's in them that follows Christ, that glorifies God, and what doesn't, we are to ignore. We are to let go. So should I follow Paul or a pastor or a teacher or a parent? Well, again, the answer is it depends. It depends, is that person following Christ? And if they are following Christ, if they're imitating Christ, we are to follow that. Where they are not following Christ, we are to not follow that. We are not to model. Christ alone is the one who is perfect. Christ alone is the one we are to follow. And we follow all others only to the extent that they follow Christ. And thankfully, thankfully we do have others that can show us, that can model Christ to us, that can allow us to see how Christ lives. <clears throat> so let's tie all this together. Let's tie it together just with, with some brief applications. And the first application I want us to look at here is that as much as we wish it were different, the Christian life is not a matter of following rules. It is not. It's not a matter of, of checking off a box. Many issues in Christian morality are not black and white. Many of them depend. They depend on the heart. They depend on the motivation. They depend on faith. And scripture tells us whatever is not done in faith is sin. So we need to understand that we're not going to have one set, one, one size fits all in the Christian life. It's not that easy. But the second thing is we are to give each other grace. We are to realize that it's not about us. We have to realize that it's beyond us. We are to build others up. We are to give up our own rights in order for others to be drawn closer to Christ, in order to advance the gospel. So this is our second one. We give other people grace. The third one is, it's not about us, it is about God. It is about Christ. It is about his glory. This is our prime motivation, everything we do. So whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God. <clears throat> and how is glory, God most glorified in me? Well, it depends. Sometimes God is glorified when we clearly see, when we clearly display the freedom we have in Christ, i.e. eating whatever is served and not worrying if it was one time offered or associated with idolatry. Other times, God is glorified when we forego our freedom, when we forego our liberty for the sake of others, and when we show the power of the gospel, really the power of the gospel to overcome this natural self-centeredness that we all have and sacrifice for others. And in this, we imitate Christ. And in this, we bring God glory. Let's pray. Father, we know that we like rules. We like to follow rules. We like everything spelled out nicely for us. But we know that that's not the way. The world is much more complicated than that. And Father, I pray that you will help each one of us internalize these principles. These principles that it is not about us. It is about your glory. And that we can truly say whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that our prime motivation is to bring you glory, to make you known to others, to draw others closer to you, whether they know you, to build them up in grace, whether they don't know you, to remove any obstacles to the gospel so that they can come into a fellowship with you. Father, I pray that you will give us that heart, you will give us that motivation, and you will give us opportunities to put this into practice. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.